Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Poplar Propcast. This is going to be episode lucky 13, so that's exciting. For this, I brought somebody who's had a, a string of bad luck with COVID recently, but has recovered enough to appear on the podcast. We're bringing Drew Denham on to talk about Michigan. Yeah, I know, Ooh. Michigan real estate. That's bizarre. So uh, he's here with uh, Drew Denham Real Estate. It's uh, He's a realtor out there and has a primarily a real estate business, but he dabbles in a lot of other things as well. And we'll turn it over to him to kind of explain what other stuff he does. And then kind of just, Drew, if you want to jump into how you ended up in real estate and all the little spurs of things you do, that'd be great. I appreciate it, Justin. Thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. Uh, full transparency. We, we we met a couple months ago in Las Vegas, uh, both uh, sharp looking dudes, and we sparked up a conversation and a friendship now. So I appreciate you. Thank you for allowing me to be on here. So, I am in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Grand Rapids is the second biggest city in Michigan. I, is, that, uh, wait, is that in the part of the mitten between the thumb and the fingers? I'm trying to get it. So oh, wait, uh, I no. am. So go back to your hand. Okay. So I am. So I am originally from here, which is the right. east side, but Grand Rapids is here, the west side. Oh, it's on the other side. Oh, okay. Because mm-hmm. my my tightest affiliation with Michigan, kind of my only knowledge of Michigan. My cousin was a preacher in Port Huron, Michigan, like the last U.S. exit over on that side. So he okay, that's far, he far froze, east side. Yeah, he froze his took us in off. Canada, I think, if oh, I remember yeah. correctly. <laughs> yeah, um, He's very but anyways, so <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Uh, no, so I've been in Grand Rapids. I want to say eight years now. So. Um, originally from the east side of the state, Bay City, Saginaw, Midland area. It's a it's a smaller town, a great town, but um, did corporate America for 10 years, basically. And, and in 2014, I interviewed with a company called Amway. Amway is uh, a great company, yeah. a big company here locally here in the Ada Grand Rapids area. Moved out here in 2014 and then uh, became a full-time real estate agent in June of 18. So officially just kind of hit my four-year mark as a full-time real estate agent. It's been amazing. I've learned so much about myself, about my business, about branding, everything. But to kind of rewind a little bit, I bought my first house in 2011. And as a side hustle from being uh, being in corporate America, I would be flipping houses on the side. And I learned so much. And I, it's just been an amazing experience. But I really doubled down on my investing. I want to say the last you know twelve to twenty four months, yeah. I bought you know fifteen doors or so this year. Started dabbling in Airbnb, which is awesome. If we you know we can have that conversation if you want to go there. But Airbnb is a amazing opportunity, and um, just loving life, growing and learning, and and chasing success in yeah, all so, aspects of my life. Yeah, that's fantastic. So let's unpack a couple of those things because I think it's interesting. So very blanket statement of corporate America. What kind of a role were you in? What kind of stuff were you doing? Because I find that a lot of times those portions of that will translate directly to because in real estate, I mean, you're you're owning, managing, marketing, customer service, like you're doing everything. So which facet of that were you doing when you were corporate America? That's a great question. So in 2009, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little bit more background. In 2009, I went to Michigan State, got my finance degree, and then I wanted to move home. I, I got a position with Dow Chemical in 2009. Uh, it was a supply chain related role. I had a finance degree, hands down my favorite role in corporate America. I did six different roles in my 10 years of corporate America. Loved the supply chain role. My next two roles at Dow Chemical were uh, in finance, you know, cost accounting, uh, 
you know, that kind of thing, corporate FP&A, which stands for financial planning and analysis, I believe, if I remember correctly. And then um, at Amway, they were all uh, finance related type roles, a systems, you know, accounting type role, an inventory role, then uh, an FP&A type role. So really mostly financial accounting type roles. Gotcha. So at Amway, you were up in the corporate structure. You weren't doing the the direct sales side of it. Correct. Corporate structure. So I was at corporate and in corporate finance. Got it. <clears throat> cool. Then the the second piece to kind of look at there is that I bought my first house in 2008. So very similar timing, right? So it's right mm-hmm. after it crashes. It kind of wallowed along there from 8, 9, 10, 11. It kept mm-hmm. going down a little bit. I know that I bought and then I lost about 10% over the next two or three years. Then you got it in 2011. That's almost perfect. Is it? Was mm-hmm. that the condition in Michigan where that was right at the bottom of the trough? You know, uh, I... It kind of lingered for a while because I, yeah. I was going to say, I think I paid too much for it my first property in 2000. It was a straight drop in and out. It was, <laughs> it was down and it just stayed there. It was it like did. The it, really out. Did. it was just flat. It really did. And I, looking back, I think about it sometimes. Like I paid too much uh, for that property. I paid $78,000 for a, a ranch in an A-type area, right? So, and I still have wait, it. Wait, I want to compare it. So it was, it was 2011 and you bought a ranch for 78000 I got some closing costs too, man. I got like $4,000, $3,000 worth of closing costs. How big was the ranch? 1,100 square feet with a full basement with a deck that was literally from one end to one end of the back in a, in wow. a area and a cul-de-sac. And I was just like, this is exactly what I wanted. And I kept so, it. Let's talk, let's, it. Talk, let's talk the other side of that. So in 2008, I bought a three bedroom, one bath, one car garage in San Diego. 980 square feet, uh, 249,000. Woo! There you go. And what, I mean, I don't even know what that would be today. I don't know San Diego, San Diego's oh market. It's well. insane. So I actually sold it right at the beginning of the pandemic because I was renting and the renting problem was hellacious. And I'd made enough money in equity on it that I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to jump out of it. And so I sold it and I doubled my money in 2020. And then mm-hmm. I moved that money around and invested more in Vegas. But then the people that bought it from me, um, they they wrote it up. It's it's six fifty now, seven hundred in two years in San Diego. So, and it was built in nineteen forty nine. Like it, it doesn't have good plumbing. It doesn't have good wiring. Doesn't have good bones. It's just there's no weather in San Diego, so there's no humidity or freeze or anything to mess with it. So it's still standing and it's got a roof and works, but no basements, none of that stuff. So you got. You got a lot more house in Michigan than I did in San Diego, but we'll, we'll come to this about markets and market pressures. I think because okay. it's fascinating. But to go back, like, to go back to your question too about the dip. I mean, I think the best. I bought a house in Bay City, uh, Bay City Michigan, where I'm from, uh, for eighteen thousand dollars in. Uh, I want to say February 2017. It needed five thousand dollars of work, and it rents for it could rent for a thousand dollars a month. So oh, it's wow. just absolutely amazing yeah. the power of real estate. But you got to put yourself yeah. out there. You got to get your deal funnels going and network with other agents and other people. And and you never know when an opportunity is going to present itself. Yeah. Now, do you manage your own properties? All the Airbnb, all the long term rentals. Do you manage them yourself, or do you work with outside companies? What do you do there? That's a really great question. So as of um, I'd say 2020 is when I made the switch to full property management. I want to make a book recommendation to all the listeners and it's called Who Not How. So the whole basis behind the book is saying 
It's not looking at how do I do this? It's who can do this for me? Who is the best person? Who is the most qualified person to take or do this task for me, right? Because you're in property management. There's tons of great property managers and they're the best at what they do. They have the best credit check systems. They have the best, um, you know, the best process to handle evictions, all that. I don't know anything about that. So I started to think about opportunity cost on time, right? Because the average price point in Grand Rapids, I just, I took some notes here. It's $377,000. I'm a a full-time real estate agent. 3% of 400 grand, let's say, is, is a significant amount of money. So does it make sense for me to manage a property, try to fix a leaky toilet. I don't really know how to do, try to do this, this, and that when I can outsource it to a company that has all the best people, all the best, the best procedures, and I can go try and sell a house or do what I got to do, have fun, read a book, go to church, whatever it is. So as of long story long, as of uh, about two years ago, I handed everything off. So a few different property managers and Airbnb, I found a great person she did all the design and I pay her 20% of the top line uh, rents to handle everything. That's great. I think that you hit on something that we evangelize here too, is that there's this, there's always going to be the cost of your time and people are really bad at self-evaluating going, okay, at my normal job, I make this much per hour. But then at night when they have one thing they need to do, they're like, cool, I'm not going to pay somebody 150 bucks to do it. I'm going to go do it. But it takes them three trips to Home Depot and four hours over there and then it's kind of fixed, but it might not pass inspection. Like there's a lot of homes we see that have been kind of kludged around the edges so that it works, but it's not really fixed, right? It doesn't have that long-term integrity. And so that, that peace of mind just kind of comes from having somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, Absolutely. There's, a, there's an old joke that's a, about a guy who has this giant skyscraper of a building and he's got this boiler in the bottom. The boiler's just not working. It's not holding pressure. And so they call in and get quotes. And this one guy comes in and he goes, I can fix it for $5,000. And they go, okay, this is killing us. We're losing time, losing money. He comes in and looks at the boiler, looks around it a second and then taps it with a hammer three times in one spot, fires right up. It's burning, holding pressure. It's great. And he asked for his $5,000. They go, no, no, we need an itemized bill. So he goes, all right. And he gives him an itemized bill. And the itemized bill says 16 years in the business, 14 years as an apprentice. Uh, and each one of those lines has like 3,000, 4,000, 2,000. And then at the very bottom, it's like um, three taps, eighty. So it's like this breakdown where it's like you're paying for the knowledge. You're not paying <laughs> for the activity. Right? Absolutely. And I can go so many different direction, directions with that, Justin, as far as an agent, you know, and, and, you know, just becoming, I always tell agents, like if you're slow or anything right now, work on your skill sets, right? If yeah. you work on your skill sets, it's going to open more doors for you. Just like your example with the boiler there, right? That person yeah. has experience and skills. They should be rewarded for that. When you're talking about skill sets too, what do you think are the core skill sets for a real estate, a licensed real estate professional, a realtor, anybody in that space, right? Because there's a lot of different directions you can focus. You can focus buyer side, you can focus seller side, you can look at some commercial stuff. Like what skill sets pair with those different directions? It's a great question. And I like to call it my big four. This is like, this is the foundation, in my opinion, as a salesperson, as an as a salesperson or entrepreneur, if you're selling a goods or service, number one, communication, right? 
over communicating. You can always, you, myself, I can always get better at communicating. How do I do that? You see the big uh, stack of books behind me. Yep. That's one way to start, right? So nail the communication. Number two, set expectations with your clients. What I've been doing uh, with any client that I have under contract, um, every Tuesday, I'm going to give them an update. And my Tuesday update might say, happy Tuesday. My update is no update, right? But they know every Tuesday they're going to hear from me to know where we're at in the process, whether you're a buyer or a seller. You know, the next step would be adding value whenever possible and putting the client first would be my, my four, I would say, foundation to expand on top of that. Investing, Wait, I right? think I missed one. I got, I got communications, set expectations, then putting the client first. What was number three? Uh, adding value whenever possible. Adding value. There it is. You taking? I'm taking notes too. We're getting deep here. I love it. <laughs> but I, so that would I would say that's the foundation as a salesperson, right? As an entrepreneur, if you're selling something. On top of that, what about investing? We're going to talk about investing a little bit too. Everybody's talking about investing. They want to know about it. How about I read five books about investing? I think Jay Shetty says that if you read five books on one topic. You're going to be very, very qualified to talk about that specific topic, right? So maybe I learn more about investing. Maybe if I want to expand my real estate realtor career, maybe I learn Spanish so I can help yeah. Spanish-speaking clients yeah. and English-speaking clients. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And also like resolving pain points in the process, right? For yeah. example, when buyers get the house or get the keys to their house, right? Typically, the first thing they do is change the locks, change the keys, right? Maybe you hire a mobile locksmith who I pay out of my pocket to go to the house to say, Mr. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Buyer, I got you. Um, yeah. You know, locksmith is here, the mobile locksmith. They're going to rekey every exterior door, right? And I'm going to, you don't have to worry about anything like that. So different things like that. I always tell salespeople, entrepreneurs, hit the pain points in the process and try to figure out the best uh, resolution to that. Yeah, that makes total sense. The, uh, the, the four bumps you hit on, I totally agree with. For... The book reading portion, one of the things I want to throw in there as you look at uh, text to read and trying to figure out, there's this this bias that kind of happens while you're turning a direction towards reinforcing your ideas. Be aware of the disparity of views in a lot of these sets. Because one of the things that happens with knowledge is that we like to reinforce the ideas we already have. I highly recommend for people to jump out there and kind of take a little bit of a challenge to the ideas you have. So find a counterpoint book that's well-regarded. I'm not saying... If, if if you think money is good, find a book that says money is bad or anything like that. Here's mm -hmm. here's an easy example. So right now we have two very different ideas on monetary policy. There's the Fed's policy where the Fed views all debt obligations as almost equal. But then there's the individual view where a dollar is much different than a bond, right? For the Fed, it's not. For an individual though, it is. So if you're looking at those two, an easy comparison is the Fed's policy and then like new modern monetary theory that really looks at how money affects the individual. And in real estate, in renting, in all of that, through the last couple of years in the pandemic, we've seen this huge example of it where the supply line gets constricted, the cash flow increases, and so you have this inflationary pressure. But raising the interest rates is just changing how the house is paid for. It's not really changing the value of the house. It's just taking part of the value and making it go towards the mortgage instead of the principal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you look at those two things and you start having different narratives. And that's true also for when you're looking at um, ways to do business, right? So I, I throw that out there as kind of a, a get those books, 
and then go find a, a, a differing opinion and then put those two ideas in, synthesize them and try and figure out where you sit. Because you might not be that kind of investor, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree, Justin. And, and I would, to add to that, if I could, of where where the economy is going, where the market's going. I'm not a big stock, stock market guy, but um, as far as real estate and the economy, right? I'm on YouTube almost on a daily basis and uh, I'm looking at what people are saying, right? Because you have people that are saying that this is going to be one of the worst things coming, right? And then you have other people that I personally talked to, a financial advisor here in Grand Rapids, where she mentioned this is kind of the worst that we're going to see as of today. Do I think both, or do I think each side is correct? Well, I think that's important to do our own research and, and be mindful of who we're taking advice from, right? Yeah. There's a book that back there, one of my favorite books, um, it's called Three Feet from, from Gold, Three Feet from Gold. And, the, and it says in there to seek counsel, not opinion. Seek counsel, not opinion. So to me, that means I'm looking at on YouTube, I'm watching Ray Dalio, right? I'm I'm watching Robert Kiyosaki, Kiyosaki, mm -hmm. saying his name wrong, but people know who that is, right? So yeah. I'm going to these guys that have a proven or track record to kind of see what they're what they're saying, right? But like you said too, also maybe taking it with a little bit grain of salt to say like let's challenge that a little bit because what I'm yeah. getting at is. As a real estate professional, as a, as a leader in the industry, I want to make sure I'm giving my clients, my customers, my database the best information that I can. I'm not out there saying it's rainbows and, and sunshine. I'm not out there saying that, you know, the world's coming to an end. But I want to give them um, information that can help them make the best decisions for them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, so yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I think that's something that we... We bump into on here a lot. We've had several people discuss their kind of investment philosophies. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear you talk about yours, especially with your number of doors that you have. Um, and then we'll talk about like the different views that we've seen. So if you could talk through like how you look at deals, what your goals are with your deals and how you kind of put them together, I think that'd be useful too. No, I love the question. I love to talk about it. So early in my, my career, my investing career, I was flipping, flipping, flipping. And although I learned so much, um, and, and met a lot of great people. I don't really do that anymore. I don't like flipping anymore because of, uh, the tax disadvantages that you incur, you know, a 30% or so tax, uh, you know, tax cut on the, or tax, uh, on the capital gains tax. Right. So in addition to that, when you're flipping houses, you're always in the rat race, right? If you want to make some income, you're always in the rat race. You're always chasing deals. Like chasing deals is fun, but you know, you're managing contractors on a daily basis. And like, these are all good things for someone, but like, that's just not, this is not where I want to go. So now as of the last couple of years, I've transitioned to multifamily buy and hold, and I'm looking for unique properties for Airbnb. For example, I just bought an old bar uh, in Bay City, Michigan, where it has two units up top. It's got a commercial space and um, it's the visibility is amazing. So I have an opportunity maybe to rent out some billboard space to some people to say, if you want to advertise on my building, you can do that, right? So different, what's the best case or what's the best use for that specific building? So to kind of drill down in the numbers a little bit, there's four things that I look for, um, basically following the Burr investing technique. I'm sure you guys have talked about that a little bit on your show. We haven't, so, we haven't jumped into it much on the cast just because we haven't hit okay. that as a, uh, a, a full proposal. We tend to have uh, so a lot of our current listeners and current owners have 
one or two doors. Our average right now is just over two. And so that being that small of an investor, it's usually incidental ownership. It's people that have bought a house and then moved and kept the old one. It's people that have inherited homes. It's people that saw an opportunity to buy when their parents were retiring. Those kind of things are where we land. The people that we have on our platform who have more doors, 10 doors, 20 doors, 50 doors, um, they tend to be more in that that space. But if, if you want to run through what it is so the listeners at home are with us, uh, that'd be fine. And then go through what you're talking about with your bar. No, I appreciate it. And uh, so Burr Investing, buy, renovate. You should call the bar, the Burr Bar. <laughs> I, was, uh, I don't know what I'm going to call it, but man, how that opportunity presented itself uh, is amazing. And we can get into that afterwards of how, how right. that came about. But so the Burr Investing, which stands for buy, renovate, uh, rent, refinance, repeat. So basically the Burr investing is like flipping a house to yourself. So my criteria. So when I'm looking at a, a potential deal, I'm only really looking at multifamilies now and then also unique type buildings. So I need to buy that. This is number one. I need to buy that building at the ARV, which stands for after repair value at 75% minus the rehab. For, so for simple math, let's say the, the building is worth $200,000 all fixed up at 75%. I'm at 150. Let's say repairs are at $30,000. I need to buy that property for 120 or less. That's number one. Number two is it needs to cash flow, positive cash flow. I'm a cash flow investor, not an appreciation investor. So that's um, something that needs to hit. Um, it needs to be in an A, B, or C area. That's going to be subjective on the investor, the buyer. So I always say, do your own due diligence on area. And then uh, finally, uh, the 1% rule or the 2% rule. So the 2% rule, if I'm on the east side of the state, so most of my portfolio actually is on the east side of Michigan, where the cash flow is is significantly better than Grand Rapids and Detroit. So the 2% rule states that if I buy a property for $250,000 and I put $20,000 into it in rehab, all in is $270,000, that property needs to rent for $2,700. That's in the west side. If it's on the east side, that's a 2% rule. So that's my criteria for the Burr investing. And Justin, it helps me take the emotion out of it, right? Because yeah. real estate, it's just math. It's just math. You go, exactly. So you take the emotion out of it when you have this criteria to say, if this property fits that, then, you know, we consider moving forward on it. But if it doesn't move on, because uh, what I've heard from a, a book or a podcast, a great deal can turn to a good deal, but a good deal can turn to a crappy deal really quick. So yeah. focus on the great deals. Yeah. So the, the Burr technique is is super popular. It's it hits in different places in different markets. So the other one that I've heard of doing, especially around fourplexes, fourplexes are kind of key for this one because of how often they turn and when they turn. So if you can find a fourplex that has had the same tenants with limited rent growth for the last four or five years, or even at this point, three years, because the rents have jumped so much. But if you can go in and find that and you're looking at an owner who's trying to cash out, you can buy them off of the current cash flow. You can get financed for it off of the cash flow, and that's where the value comes in. But then every tenant, when they move out, you put enough money into each unit so that you can increase rent by 20%. Then you refinance it on the new cash flow. You pay the old loan off, you've got the cash tap, and then you have money to go do it again. So you can stack that kind of a deal too, where it's just it's looking at the numbers and going, okay, 
it's way below market and that's the chase, right? So there, there's consistent opportunities in that area, especially right now. So I think that there's this, and you can tell me if you're seeing this, but there's this, this sensation around a lot of people that are going, okay, it looks like we're going into a recession and everybody who's listening, I'm not saying we're in a recession. I'm just saying people are saying this. And because it looks like that, they want to be cash rich in the recession. So now some people are trying to catch the falling knife. They're putting properties out there and going, I want to get half of the last two years appreciation on this property. And then I'm going to be ready for the deal in a year. Right. So are you seeing that kind of movement in the market at all? So as far as like an increase in, in inventory where, where people are trying to unload because they're maybe at the top of the peak, so to speak. Right. Right. That's their guess. Right. So you have these two different investment philosophies. Some are saying it's cash flowing positive. Keep it for other. Others are going the appreciation investors going, cool. That's what I need. That's my next deal. I need to take it out. No. And I agree. I see where you're coming from. So I looked at a couple different things. I looked at Detroit and Grand Rapids. Right. So number one and number two, as far as population in Michigan. Right. So. Uh, Grand Rapids inventory is one half of what it was three years ago today. So (laughs) it's always good to look at data, right? And kind of see where we're going with that. So as far as Detroit, uh, inventory in Detroit is two thirds of what it was three years ago today. So, right, because we hear all this chaos and everything that's going on, but let's look at the data, right? So days on market, right? So days on market in Grand Rapids uh, today is 38 days on market. October 2019, three years ago, it's 43. So it's getting somewhere close, right? And then the last data point I have for uh, for median uh, list price, both Detroit and Grand Rapids, September over or August over September, um, the median list price has dropped 3%. And we're seeing some other markets, other bigger markets like Tampa, Dallas, San Diego, Sacramento. I'm hearing Atlanta. I'm hearing uh, Tam- or I said Tampa, Mi- Miami, right? So typically, I'm going off on a tangent here a little bit, Justin. Yeah, but go for it. Typically, the the bigger markets are leading indicators, right? They always say the yeah. West Coast and the East Coast, and it squeezes in a little bit. But that's not factoring in COVID, right? Because of COVID, a majority of professions now can work remote, right? So. I don't know if that's if we can necessarily follow that, but what I can say is they're seeing some really uh, inventory increases in San Diego, parts of Texas, definitely Tampa, Atlanta, uh, and some other cities, right? So, what does that mean necessarily? And it's yeah. for us to figure out and kind of try to figure out some action or how can we prepare, right? Yeah, and I so being in Vegas, I think one of the reasons I'm seeing this too is that we kind of act as a bellwether. We have such dramatic swings in valuation and price because it's an immigration city, right? It's not, we're not having a giant population explosion from breeding. It's a population explosion from an influx of people from a lot of California, um, some Texas. We get a lot of Hawaii too, which is surprising, but that puts the pressure on it. And so when the imbalance between those two markets is such that Vegas is easier and more affordable to live in, that's when the movement happens. I, I moved here myself from New York in 2013, and that was a just a massive difference. I was instantly more solvent than I was. I was living in Brooklyn. So obviously it's a huge jump, but that that transition is kind of what are normal individual pressures. And I think a lot of normal individual family pressures float around the edges of these investment markets and push on the investors who are in those markets. So it's not something that is 
investment controlled. It's migratory controlled. It's macro controlled. It's these economic pressures for normal families that investors kind of sit along the sides of and are trying to gauge and predict. But it's this emergent behavior, like from a swarm of ants, where it's extremely difficult to control or corral. But it, yeah, it's it's fascinating though. Uh, it, is it is definitely, definitely or at least proposed ideas that may be occurring. Um, and I forget. I think I forgot one other city too. But I hear it all the time on the research that I go through is Austin, Texas, because yeah. Austin, Texas, from what I've read, has experienced I think thirty to forty percent appreciation year over year, where the typical market is around five, six, seven, right percent. So now, and I have also heard that the supply of houses is so overloaded in Austin, Texas, that they're starting to see signs where, you know, people are exiting tech or investors are exiting Austin, that kind of thing. So I guess long story short, you know, for our, for listeners and for us is keep an eye on these bigger cities and, and kind of see how they're being impacted from, you know, the supply push and the interest rate push and kind of see if we can... Uh, figure out some, you know, where these other cities might go as well. I have a, I have a friend who lives in Austin and she writes in this space for Gartner. So she does the research and stuff and kind of sits in real estate and her, her take on it is nuts because she moved there from Vegas in 2018, I think is either end of 18, beginning of 19, but they moved there and sold their house in Vegas and have been renting and their rents have nearly doubled in the four or five years they've been there. And that doubling is because of population pressure. As mm-hmm. more companies go, ooh, I like the regulatory and tax environment in Texas. I also want to attract young talent. The young talent is in Austin. Walking around in the parks there, it's it's humid as all get out in August. It's awful. The weather is grotesque. I do not recommend it. But walking <laughs> around, every single park was full of 20-somethings running, young moms jogging, people playing football, people playing rugby all over the place, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see pickleball, but I'm sure it's happening. It, it's mm-hmm. vibrant, and it has some cultural stuff there that really engages, and it's a very youthful city, and I think that's one of the pressures, too. It reminds me very much of San Francisco in the early aughts. Um, it has that same kind of energy right now. So I, I can see how that pressure is coalescing there, I think I thought with more work from home, it'd be relieved, but it looks like it's still ramping up. So that'll be interesting to see how Austin shakes out. It is. It is interesting. What's your friend's take on, you know, future uh, of Austin, just out of curiosity. Yeah. The, the amount of growth there from people is absolutely blowing up the construction side. Um, There's places where it used to be a row of houses. Now all those houses are bars. And right next to it, because it's so popular, they're building like a 50-story skyscraper. So Austin's going to be building up for the next couple of years because that's how they're going to get the density they need to maintain the population. Um, They're luckier than Houston right now in that they don't have the massive sprawl where Houston exists almost has this this six or seven city centers. Mm -hmm. Austin being having the capital there is more concentrated and more uh, locked into one space, which is nice. Let's shift gears back again and let's talk a little bit about Michigan and Michigan's market. Because if you look on Google Trends and you look at the terms house for rent and homes for rent, and this is mostly because that's the world I was in, it's also true for homes for sale and houses for sale. Up until 2020, there was a perfectly normal 
uh, dip in value. And that, that dip in searches happens coming into the holiday season. And then it starts going back up in January and has the summer crest. People move when it's warm enough to move and when the kids are out of school. That's been the normal time for people to move both to buy and to sell. With COVID, that whole thing has flattened out. Um, it's disturbed the curb in a way I've, I've never seen a search term go before that wasn't, mm-hmm. that's such a normal thing. And so my question for you is in Michigan, with the snow, with the way that market works, did you see a change in buying behavior during COVID that was unusual compared to previous years? a great question. So, you know, 2020, 2021, and I would say uh, to mid-2022, it was absolutely insane as far as the market goes. I mean, the, the certain things that buyer clients had to do to get across the finish line over that span of two years or so, I mean, it was absolutely um, insane, right? So, uh, you know, kind of based on my data that I mentioned earlier for Michigan, for Detroit and Grand Rapids, I think it's important to look at, you know, always compare apples to apples, right? So we're in October, today is October 4th, 2022, right? Typically in Michigan, after Labor Day, things cool off a little bit. And the reasons why is because kids are in school, right? People mm-hmm. don't necessarily want to move in the in the colder months. So we've always seen, at least the four years I've been an agent, we've always seen after September, things dip, dip down a little bit and then they ramp back up in the early part of next year. So we're seeing that. So it's, it's important to compare in my opinion, October, 2022 to prior, prior fall months. Right. So, but based on the data that I'm seeing days on market is creeping up to where it was in 2019, 2019 Grand Rapids, Michigan was still a very strong market, but I don't think we can necessarily compare it to 2020, 2022 and 21 because of all the stimulus, all the money being pumped into the economy. I mean, we're talking about the housing market, but just about what about used cars? Right. Yeah. So the, the lowest supply of new cars bumped up used cars price to this amount yeah. that I don't I mean, it's absolutely wild. So I just think with all the money that's been flooded into the economy the last two years, it has pushed these prices to, you know, in Grand Rapids, 20 percent year over year, where, again, the, the average in Michigan's three to four or five percent appreciation. You know, we saw 15 to 20 percent over the last two years. Right. That's abnormal. So that's that's just not something to um, you just have to be mindful of that because it's a little bit. I'm th- I can't think of the word that I want to say, but it's a little bit. I don't want to say fake, but it's it just there was just so much money being pumped in the economy that made prices rise up and rises or prices rise up in everything and real estate, automobiles, that kind of thing. So and it was there was a limit on where you could put that money too. All of a sudden, if you're going, okay, cool, let's get a new washer dryer. Mm-hmm. They're like, cool, you got six months and then it'll be here. And some that's people, true. that timing made them go, yeah, that's not where my money goes. Um, so <laughs> you're a supply line nerd, so this will be fun to talk about. But when you talk about the used cars, like it was a perfect storm of things. We had um, back, it's been almost 20 years now, but the Cash for Clunkers program took a huge number of used cars off the road. It was trying to get a higher um, number of cars that had the modern emission system. And so it was pulling that off. And so these old cars that people had driven forever, classic cars and stuff were taken off the road. That was one of the things that happened. So then we had that and put pressure on new cars for a couple of years at the beginning. And then we come into 2020 and all of the rental car companies freak out. 
and all of the rental car companies freak out and sell their fleets. So it washes used cars onto the market. And that wash of used cars onto the market meant that for a while, you could get a pretty good deal. But the supply line side for making cars was so tight that used cars and new cars, the supply wasn't the same as it was in 2019. And so all the people that would buy a car or buy a new car were kind of competing for used and a couple of new cars. So in that way, do you think that there's, and that's talking about supply lines for cars, right? Mm -hmm. So at the same time, what pressures have you seen on the supply line for houses that changed from 2019 to 2021. Wait, start start that answer again. For some reason, I didn't get audio on that. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it was the way you turned your head. You turned your head just the way you're fighting. <laughs> I've gotten that feedback before on this, but uh, so what I was going to say is, as far as like inventory, you know, the inventory levels, as I mentioned earlier, they're you know, two thirds of what it was for Detroit, two thirds today versus what it used to be in 2019, and then uh, one half of what it was in Grand Rapids for 2019. So inventory uh, is still not what it was back uh, or today versus what it is in 2019. So in 2019 was a was a still relatively strong market in West Michigan and, and all of Michigan and, and frankly, probably all of uh, America as far as real estate is concerned. So Days on market is comparable to what it was back in 2019. So I think the really the really big thing to focus on is the Fed has announced that we're probably going to see one or two more interest rate increases. We're already yeah. at seven percent. Seven percent is is historically not that bad, right? So you got to keep. It- That's one of the things that people don't take into account is that in the eighties you had interest rates at eighteen percent. So right. you know. Back in 2008, when I bought the first one, I was, I think I was at six and a quarter, right? So 7% is not great, but it's not bad. For sure. And, you know, will it go to seven and three fourths or eight and a half by the end of the year? I'm not sure. So it's really going to, we have to really just watch what the Fed's going to do, right? Because I did some research and in the seventies, interest rates in a similar type situation, interest rates went up to almost 20%, right? So it's going to matter of where the Fed's going to, if the Fed's going to pivot or not, right? Are they going to say, okay, interest rates are, let's say hypothetically 8% by the end of 2022, right? It's starting to stall out the economy. That's what they want, right? But are they going to pivot back and go back to three or four percent, which some people that I know are saying that, or are they continuing to go up like we saw in the 70s where they just keep pushing it up, 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 up and until something, uh, who knows what's going to happen at that point, right? So I think it's going to. Yeah. So let's talk about the, before we switch on supply and talk about other parts of supply, let's stay on the money thing for a minute. Because one of the things that's happening right now that I find fascinating is you have other countries behaving in entirely opposite ways on monetary policy. And because of that, for one of the first times, we have near parity with the dollar, the the EU, and the um, pound, right? So um, the euro, the pound, and the dollar are all nearly exactly interchangeable. And that's insane because the, the pound, sterling, has been at $1.50 to $2 forever. And then to see it drop over the last couple of years, and now Liz Truss comes in and goes, "Cool, we're going to give <laughs> we're going to give a, a, a tax cuts to the wealthy." It just it tanked their economy, and inflation's floating more. And so you have this movement of foreign dollars 
into investment capital. It's one of the things that made Vancouver such an unaffordable market is all the Chinese money there. So now are we in a situation where European and British people with a lot of money go, I want to hedge, but I don't want to hedge in dollars. I want to hedge in property in dollars. Like, is that a possible concern for the housing market as we slowly drop down? People that need a mortgage, it's too expensive. People that have cash to park, it's a deal. Definitely something to consider because like uh, from some of my research too, the dollar right now is relatively strong versus- Extremely strong. It's massively Massively strong. And and so that's definitely something to be mindful of. There's just so many uh, unknowns because- let me go back to this book that I'm reading or uh, Ray Dalio, right? Ray mm-hmm. Dalio is, he has this amazing 30 minutes uh, uh, YouTube video. It's got millions and millions of views, right? But he talks about changing world order, right? Of all these factors versus uh, the economy, political, you know, a potential war, all this, right? So this this potential shift, right? Where America may not be the 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 national currency or the reserve currency, as he likes to call it. So I just think there's just so many, there's just so many data points that are, are pointing in, in different directions. But um, I think it's certainly a concern and it's certainly something that we need to watch and, and kind of see where the next handful of months go. Yeah. But it's like, And China's doing that. China's putting pressure against the U.S. as the reserve currency by backing Russia and maintaining that relationship. Like it's, absolutely. it's, actively doing that. And this is a a place where they manipulate their own currency deliberately. Uh, So it's, it's geopolitics are affecting your house price. I know, I know. But like at the end of the day too, like what can we do? What can we provide to our listeners? Like how can we help them? You know, what do you, what do you do? How much can, what can we necessarily control with, with that? Right. What can we do? And I think it's just continuing to educate ourselves from experts in these fields to kind of come up with our own opinion of where the market's going. And if it's, if you're wearing the investor hat, you know, it's just, you know, watching the market to say, at what point is it really a good time for me to buy my next investment property? Right. Right. If I'm a buyer right now of a primary residence, you know, do we wait until early next year to see if the Fed's going to pivot and go back down to 4%, right? Because there's a saying that people are, are, yeah. are going around saying, uh, marry the house, date the rate. Well, yeah. what if, you know, you're going to lock in at 7% today, which is okay, right? It's not bad. But what if, what if rates continue to go up the next five years, right? My, yeah. my message to them is make sure, make sure you can afford the 7% payment. Yeah. Plus oh, some, absolutely. Right? That's yeah. my message to them. I think absolutely. So if you're do so this comes into that invest, we'll come back to supply lines in a second, but on that investor type, you have to assess your appetite for risk. And there are different people that are going to engage with different levels of risk and be comfortable mm-hmm. as an individual buying a property as a primary residence. The question should just be, can I make the payment? And do I see any reason I can't for the next 30 years? Right. Or even 10, because if rates go up from here, you're in great shape. If rates go down from here, you refinance and you're mm-hmm. in great shape if you can afford it now, right? So you don't want to push yourself in a spot where you're compromised if something happens. So that's that's for individuals that are doing primary residence. When we talk about investors, you're a cash flow investor. We talked to a, a guy who's out in um, uh, Mitch Dominsky. He's um, uh, Columbus. He's in the Ohio area, but he's very much a um, 
future cash flow. And by that, I mean, he's trying to pay all of his properties off and get to the point where he has cash flow that will replace his income in 20 years. So okay. it's not cash flow now. All that cash flow is going towards principal and equity. It, his goal is the long term. And then you have people that are just leveraged investors and go, cool, here's the cash flow. Here's what I can get. I'm going to do an arm for five years, interest only arm for five years. And the next three years, I'm going to fix it and get rid of it. I'm leveraging the capital to dive through this, right? So when you look at those different scenarios, as, as a listener, you should be thinking about what kind of risk you're comfortable with. Because if you're making investments that don't let you sleep at night, that's not a good idea. That's gambling. That's when you cross the line into not knowing if you're going to do it right or not. And you're just taking that risk. And that is, it can be very unhealthy for your for your personal well-being, your financial well-being, and your familial well-being and social well-being. It's dangerous. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many different ways you can be an investor, right? You mentioned the, the I think the gentleman in Ohio where he's paying off every 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 note that he has or trying to pay it off early, right? But there's people uh, on the other side of that saying, why are you paying off a three and a half percent mortgage off early, right? Does that make sense? And I guess that's up for each individual investor to, to kind of look right. at. Your next scenario about the 5.1 arm, I don't know if I'm 100% confident that in five years, right, we're going to see price, we're at prices here, right? In five years, are they going to be here? I don't know that. So right. I'm not I'm not investing that way. My 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 the way I look at it, Justin, is long term buy and hold. Right. Because <laughs> even today. Right. I always tell investors or realtors that ask me about investing lately is you have this top line rent. Right. It's inflated. It's really, really high. I think it's it's probably near the peak, in my opinion. Right. So if in a deal makes sense take a 20% haircut on the top line. If it still makes sense, it's it's probably something to consider moving forward on, right? So be conservative on, at least my approach, be conservative on that top line rent. If rent today is 2000, do I still cash flow at 1600? Yeah. Right? Oh yeah. That's my approach. Yeah. That's smart. Um, okay. Let's go back to supply line now. Cause I want to talk about Detroit a little bit because for a while there was a government program in Detroit where They'd be like, yes, here's a house. You have to live in it for the next five years. You got to put money into it. But there was such a glut of houses. Uh, is Has that shifted in Detroit or is there still areas of town where it's just not worth investing in? It's a great question. And some of my research, I've been doing a lot of research on you know the market and you know where the economy is going. And Detroit has come up in a lot of my data research to say that this is a good location to invest in, right? Because, and I think that one of the biggest reasons is the cost, the price per house, right? In the Midwest, yeah. in Grand Rapids, we're at 377, but in certain parts of Detroit, you're probably still around the $200,000 mark, right? And from a right. cash flow perspective, that makes sense, right? Because the rents are inflated. Like most markets, the rents have gone through the roof, but the cost to purchase a home in Detroit, Michigan is still relatively um, doable, so to speak. So from a yeah. cash flow perspective, that is attractive to investors. And I've seen Detroit on many different lists pop up to say, this is a market that you should keep your eye on, right? So, but as far as supply, kind of going back to the uh, two thirds of uh, Detroit, the greater Detroit area is two thirds supply of what it was three years ago. Um, I also know that they're putting a ton of investment into into Detroit and the suburbs and, and that kind of thing. So I think the long story long is just to kind of see where the market's going, but keep an eye in Detroit. I would say keep an eye on Grand Rapids and 
start to do your research. I'm not saying you specifically, Justin, but like our listeners here, do your research. I have a handful. I have the top 10 based on my research, top 10 cities to consider investing in if and when there is a downturn. And we can certainly talk about some of that. And really the leading indicators um, are, you know, job growth and also the price per, uh, the price of the cost of a house. In addition, supply. So going back to Austin, Texas, there's, they're 100%, 100 miles an hour building yeah. homes left up to right. You said they're not building up, which you know yeah. makes sense. But there's these other cities that are experiencing growth, but they don't have the amount of homes being built, right? And it's the supply and demand balance. Right. So um, hopefully that helps answer your question about Detroit, two-thirds of the inventory of, of what it was three years ago. And we'll just have to keep an eye on it and kind of see where, where it goes. So what, what businesses do you see in Detroit and Grand Rapids that are putting that uh, population growth potential there? Like what, what stuff is going to push those uh, wages that are going to be able to afford the rents? So uh, the big companies here in West Michigan, you have Amway, you have Gordon's Food Service, you have Steelcase, you have Meyer. Meyer is a, I don't think Meyer is on your side of the, the country, but Meyer is a, a huge uh, grocery uh, company. So, I mean, they're, they're huge. So I think... Uh, the owners are the the richest people in Michigan. So you might, someone might want to fact check that. But anyways, I'm just saying Meyer is a large, large, large corporation company. So in Detroit, you have the obviously the, the automobile industry, that kind of thing. So uh, you know those both those cities are continuing to develop. Uh, you know other parts of the area. Grand Rapids looks so different than what it was five years ago, right? So the yeah. uh, you know they're investing back into their communities to attract talent, right? to attract people because of COVID, a lot of people can be remote now. So you see this gravitation, especially, you know, I don't know Detroit that well, because I'm not in that market, but in West Michigan, you just see people moving from all yeah. over the country into Grand Rapids. Interesting. So keep an eye on the top 100 market. So in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was poorly named, but has a lot of good stuff in it, there is a lot of, of pull in there to get vehicle manufacturing, especially electrical vehicle manufacturing, back to the US. And that includes incentives and tax benefits for things that are entirely sourced and constructed in the US. Are you going to see that affect car building in Michigan? I'm not sure to be fully honest with you, Justin, uh, just because with the, you know, kind of being not in the Detroit area that much, I'm not sure how much that's going to impact the overall industry. I think it's a great question. I just don't want to, I don't want to uh, BSU or, and you can edit this out if you want, but I just don't know a ton about that. That aspect. No, I'm, I'm going to leave it in. I think it gives you more credibility. You know what? That's exactly where I was thinking next, but I just, you know, I, I'm just keeping an eye on interest rates, keeping an eye on supply, yeah. keeping an eye on days on market because the data doesn't lie. Right. So, yeah. and then just be mindful of, of who, I don't mean you specifically, but the listeners, right? Who are you listening to, right? To right. try and get some advice, seek counsel, not opinion. So go to the experts, see what they are saying. And like you said earlier in this in this conversation, Justin, like then find someone else on the other side to see what yeah. he or she is saying, right? And then kind of come up with your own conclusion. But yeah. I mean, I think it's great that we're talking about this. It's important as leaders and influencers in this space to say, you know, this is our opinion of where we're at, but this changes on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Yeah, absolutely. The um, the recent smash of Hurricane Ian into Florida uh, is a 
not random, but it's a catastrophic event that occasionally occurs and can decimate and rip apart a community. Uh, hearts, I hate saying thoughts and prayers. It feels so shallow, but my thoughts and prayers are with them. I hope everybody's okay. I hope we figure out a way out of this. The other piece that it's highlighting is kind of the insurance situation in Florida, which is kind of a mess. The only reason I'm mentioning that is because I want to know if you have any take on infrastructure in Michigan after the Flint water crisis. Is the Flint thing something that could happen in other places in Michigan? Or do you think it was something that was anomalous to just Flint? Does that make sense? It certainly does. And I think that's a great question. And my answer uh, would be is probably an anomaly with Flint, right? So Flint, the top top 10 dangerous, I'm not trying to give a bad name for Flint because from what I've heard, they've really come a long way over the last couple of years. But, you know, from a fact perspective, Saginaw, Detroit and Flint, Michigan have been rated in the top 10, top 20 most dangerous cities in the United States, right? And that's not me trying to blast them or anything like that. Like I grew up not too far from Saginaw. So uh, I think that's a little bit of an anomaly with with Flint. I just don't think they had the leadership uh, in place to combat, you know, everything that was going on with that water crisis. So, you know, would Grand Rapids handle it the way they did? I don't, I'd be shocked if they did, you know, Detroit, other bigger cities. So I think it was just a, you know, maybe a leadership type thing. It didn't have the right people in place to make the decisions to help its community. So I don't, I don't foresee, I don't foresee uh, that happening anywhere else in Michigan, but, uh, you know, but I also will say Flynn has come a long way and I've even heard, even heard some, some things where investors are, are starting to invest in Flynn. I'm like, Flint, Michigan, Flint, Michigan <laughs> people are investing in, and it's probably a good cash flow market. I don't know a ton about Flint, but as far as real estate, yeah. because you know, I, I really found my sweet spot in the in the Bay City area, which is the east side of the state. I'm from there. I grew up there. I know the streets like the back of my hand. So I'm going to keep investing in there. And certainly I'll keep my eyes open to different cities and different locations. But, you know, my sweet spot is kind of Bay City, Lansing, uh, Grand Rapids. So gotcha. I don't see that happening. And I think it was just a maybe just a bad time for that for that city, you know, with the water crisis at that time. Gotcha. Okay. Let's, let's, uh, I've got two more things I want to talk about before I kind of wrap this up. And the last one is building supplies in Michigan. So for the longest time, everything came in and out of that area through the Erie Canal. Uh, and then we got the rail systems that really kind of shifted the Erie Canal to being less necessary, but you guys still have intercontinental or excuse me, inter country trade with Canada across the Bay. And then you have trucks and you have the trucking industry, but having the vehicle manufacturing there, a lot of stuff leaves there on trains and comes in on trains. So when you start thinking about building supplies for creating new properties, for creating, for rehabbing properties, for keeping Home Depots and Lowe's full for move-in repairs, how's the supply crunch hitting building supplies uh, right now? Is it Has it lessened? Is it still there? What's going on? It's lessened. It's a great question. And it makes me think about two of, of the homes that are being built um, as of right now, that are getting the, fin- the, fin- the final touches, so to speak, right? But those contractors, those builders, right, they paid the costs a year ago or six months ago of inflated prices on cement, you know, roofing materials, lumber, that kind of thing. So prices have come down, right? So the overall cost for that new property, right, is significantly higher than what it would be to build a new property today, if that makes sense. But so yeah. to answer your question, the, the different prices have softened, you know, like uh, a, a roofer or those kinds of expenses, uh, electrical lumber prices have come down. So 
I think it's supply and demand, supply and demand driven. I think the, a lot of these trades and especially lumber, right? They finally are able to catch up, you know, yeah. catch up with, with a demand. In addition to that kind of a similar type answer, but going back to the car industry, I don't know if you've driven by some new dealerships or new car dealerships recently, but I'm starting to see instead of four or five new cars, I'm starting to see yeah. 40, 30, right? So yeah. that, that surplus now or catch up, so to speak, of supply, not only in lumber and, and those kinds of things, the trades, but also in new cars, you know, what is that going to do to the overall market of the car industry and also the, the housing industry, right? But the, yeah. the long story long answer to your question, yes, we are start, starting to see um, kind of a, an opening up or, or a, a decrease in prices on the, the trades. Good, good. Because that's that's one of the things I've noticed. So speaking of cars, I'm I'm a Jeep guy and my my parents and my sister both ordered theirs and I bought mine off a lot. But I'm in the Jeep groups and I watch people go, I ordered mine this day and it's getting done this day. And those timelines are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So the delivery window is not as reliant on chip shortage, metal shortage, part shortage, shipping delays. All those stuff is starting to straighten out. The other side of it though, is as I look at housing starts and housing completions, there's a lot of builders who are looking at the climate and going, well, I can't drop my price by 20% because my costs have increased 20% for this lumber I've already bought. And so they're sitting there looking at it and trying to decide, do I finish this house and go to the market and try and get 350,000 for it? when the market's giving 300,000 for other homes in the neighborhood, right? So there is that challenge for new home builds that I don't think is affecting existing builds and repairs or flips. It's, it's a very different space. So the I new home space that. is, is, eh. so are you seeing a difference there? No, you're exactly right. And it brought up a, a thought. If you have some flippers that listen to this podcast, mm -hmm. that's something I would be mindful of if I'm a flipper right now, right? So I kind of go into yeah. back to the my rental analysis of if if I could, if it still makes sense at 20% less of top line, take that same logic to a flip, right? If ARV is is 400, do I still make a good profit at 360 at 350, right? right. So that would be my message to your flippers that are listening to that to say that's just something to be mindful of, right? Because we're seeing month over month, August over September, 2022, 3% drop in median list price in Detroit and yeah. Grand Rapids, right? It, you know, is Detroit and Grand Rapids a leading indicator for all of the United <laughs> States? You know, maybe a little bit. They're still, they're top 100 cities in in, in the United States, but just be careful if you're a flipper, right? And, and just yeah. make sure that you're buying a great deal because if yeah. we take a haircut on top line, you know, can you hold it? Having an exit strategy, can you hold it? Can you rent it? Does yeah. it still make sense at selling at 350 or whatever? So I think that's something important for flippers to be mindful of right now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the last question, this is kind of wrap us up. How do you guys deal with all the snow? And I specifically mean that around <laughs> renting and buying. Like renting and buying in the snow has to be awful. Awful to tour, awful to keep the houses clean from all the moisture, and awful to move in. So what do you guys do for those months? That's a great question. I, I look at it as an opportunity, right? So the best time, <laughs> the best time as a, if I'm telling a seller, the best time to sell in Michigan is March to July, right? Because yep. it takes 30 days or so on to close in a house. And most people want to be in a house by Labor Day. So March to July, right? But the, typically, the people that list in November, 
you know, December are those people that probably what have to probably sell. Right. So, yeah. uh, so that's an opportunity for buyer clients, right? I'll pick you up in my truck, four wheel drive yeah. truck. We'll get the boots on, we'll get the coffee going and we'll go out and get it. So it really hasn't been an issue. I remember, you know, three winters ago or two winters ago, we had one of the worst winters in Michigan where they called it the snow apocalypse. I think they called it where literally it was negative 20 or 30 degrees. You know, McDonald's was even shut down, different things like that. But I was out, I think I got a deal <laughs> under contract. So I just think you prepare for it and, you know, you get the boots, you get the gear on and you educate your clients and, and make sure that they're safe or we're safe and we're doing it the right way. And I look at it as more as an opportunity because where maybe some buyers are saying, no, I don't want to do it. I'm saying, let's go guys, let's go. This is an opportunity. Like let's get a price reduction. Let's get your closing cost covered. Let's get a home warranty. Like this is the time, right? Because at the end of the day, supply and demand, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it reminds me, have you ever heard of the Waffle House Index? I have, but educate me or elaborate on that. So it's, it's in the, uh, in the Southeast, whenever there's a disaster, whenever there's a, a hurricane or a, a power outage, or when COVID was happening, they'd sit there and they'd look at which Waffle Houses were still open. And if there's a certain threshold of Waffle Houses still open, it's not that bad. If all the Waffle Houses are closed, <laughs> it's really bad. Oh my God. I think of that when you mentioned McDonald's. Like I'm sure there's there's certain companies that go, Yeah, you're working. We're working because people will drive through. People will come in. Let's go. And a lot of the employees there are living paycheck to paycheck. So they don't want to give up a day's pay either. So they'll make it in through the snow, make it in through the tornado, make it in through whatever's going on. And that's interesting. I'll bet there's a, a larger complex around that that somebody's working on. I have no For idea. Sure, man. And I just would say there's an opportunity. There's always an opportunity. I, I frame it as this is an opportunity to to maybe get a, a buyer client that maybe doesn't have maybe the best financing or doesn't have a ton of money to put towards a down payment or closing costs, right? This is the opportunity. Yeah. Let's go get it, right? Yeah. And um, so that's kind of how I how I would view the-, the So you look at the market. snow as a buyer's market. Well, I would just, I'd say there's opportunity in any market, you know, even as an okay. investor, right? Like- I've yeah. come across some people that they're just, they're just going to, they're sitting on the sidelines for a while and that's okay. But it's, we talked earlier in this podcast, it's, it's data driven, it's number driven. Right. And yeah. I just remember one of the, one of the, one thing, one thing or something I regret from my earlier in my career is I would just overanalyze the, the data overanalyze. I was looking at three units on the other side of the state in 2015 and 14 for 30, 40, thousand dollars right so to put that in perspective so why i'm bringing that up justin is just to say if you're an investor there's a deal in every market there's a deal there's opportunity it's your mindset right if you're saying that deals don't exist in this market that's exactly what you're going to say or what you're going to receive excuse me right but if you're saying there's opportunities everywhere i'm putting i'm filling my lead funnel i'm getting out there i'm meeting people an opportunity will present itself right and then does it say, okay, does it make sense? Am I being conservative with the numbers? And if it, and if it, and if you are, then, you know, pull the trigger. Because I think yeah. I overanalyzed the data on a lot of properties yeah. in my early days where I should have just, I should have just, I, you know, moved forward. I think that speaks to the thesis we were talking about earlier though, which is where you're comfortable as an investor. It sounds like during that period, you were, you were building your guts for deals. Like you were mm-hmm. figuring out how you feel about them. And now you know that you should have done those. But if you hadn't agonized over those, 
I don't know if now you know that you should have done those. Right? So exactly. I love where you're going with this. I love where you're going with this. Can I say one more thing? Is yeah, of course. I look back and say, you know, I missed some opportunity. I gained a lot. I learned a lot. And I'm, I don't, I think everything happens for a reason, but I missed some opportunities in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, right? Yeah. So on average, real estate's a 21 year cycle, right? From up to, yeah. down, up to down, right? I'm not going to waste that again, right? I'm not going to waste, uh, you know, I don't want people to fail. I don't want people to lose their houses, right? But sometimes that just happens, right? And and if that happens, then, you know, the prices are going to dip. And yeah. I'm not going to waste, I'm not going to, I'm not going to waste as many opportunities as I did, like I did in, you know, 13 or 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that kind of thing. So long yeah. story long, educate yourself, see what's going on in the market, look at different views from experts in this space, see what the market's going. I'm sure you're happy to help anybody that's listening. I'm certainly happy to help. I bought this new um, data-driven software that shows all these different markets in the United States to say, days on market, year-over-year comparison, that kind of thing. I'm happy to share. If someone wants to reach out to me, share their market with them. So just do your own due diligence and there's opportunities everywhere in any market. Perfect. That's fantastic, Drew. I really appreciate you coming on. If people do want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? I am on Facebook. I am on LinkedIn. My Instagram Instagram handle is Drew Dunham Real Estate. Those are kind of my main platforms, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. I'm happy to help any way that I can. I'm a big advocate for mental health, for mindset our mindset, uh, real estate, realtor, investing, everything. So spiritual, familial, you know, happy to help in any way that I can. Perfect. We'll put your links in the show notes. If you need property management services, you can find us at poplar.home slash pod. That's poplar.home slash P-O-D. We are not managing in Michigan. Someday we may once we decide to brave the snow. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> I appreciate Everybody you. Look them up on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the social things that are out there. And we hope you have a great day and good luck in all your investing endeavors. Appreciate you guys. 